we say there's a healthcare crisis, insurance is so expensive. Insurance is so expensive because seven out of 10 adults are overweight or obese, and 30% of children are overweight or obese. That's why we have a healthcare crisis. And yet there's been research that shows that a low-fat, whole foods, plant-based diet reverses heart disease without drugs or surgery, can reverse type 2 diabetes, can prevent cancer and extend cancer survival time, and can reduce or reverse or at least make better a number of autoimmune diseases. Certainly people who follow whole foods, plant-based diets have less overweight and obesity. Research is very clear about a whole foods, plant-based diet. And yet the public relations industry for these businesses is so effective in fooling people and giving them the wrong information. That was Amy Hamlin, Executive Director of the Coalition for Healthy School Food, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Welcome back to the show. I am Jess. I am your host. And who am I? I know we have new listeners tuning in every week, so who am I? Well, I'm a plant-based Ironman triathlete, yoga instructor, massage therapist, dedicated meditator, writer, and creator of yogitriathlete.com. And every week I partner with my soulmate, training buddy, and plant-based Ironman husband, BJ, to bring you guys the stories and voices of people who are looking, finding, and living their purpose. We've been traveling all over the country, logging well over 5,000 miles already in the past four and a half months, connecting with people and recording interviews. Professional and Olympic athletes, world-renowned physicians and coaches, and everyday folks just making massive changes in their lives and the lives of others. And today's guest is doing a combo of both, finally getting her chance to live out a vision 50 years in the making. Amy is in the process of making a lifelong dream come true. She has purchased land in Ithaca, New York, where she's building a home for her daughter and herself that will also serve as home to a vast veganic garden comprised mostly of fruits and berries. Her vision is to open up the garden to the community and have it serve as a pick-your-own CSA and educational center. This past August, BJ and I attended a veganic farming workshop at Amy's soon-to-be home, which at the time was just a construction site. A group of us gathered on the property to help her erect a fence to enclose the garden, and in return, she provided us with an amazing vegan lunch and an educational seminar with two veganic farmers from Pennsylvania. Amy is an individual whose missions are steeped in service. It's just the way she's built. Her knowledge of plant-based nutrition is extensive, and her story of becoming vegan is more than moving. It's downright intense. And not only is she creating this amazing farm, she's also balancing her role at the Coalition for Healthy School Food. If you haven't heard of the Coalition, then maybe you've heard of PS244, the public school in Flushing, Queens that made history in 2013 for being the first school to serve an all-vegetarian lunch to its students. Swapping out beef burgers for braised beans and fried chicken for falafel, not only are the kids eating the food, the school is providing weekly nutrition classes and energy breaks, which allow the kids to get up and be active for a minute, which is all it takes to feel renewed in energy. PS244, with help from the coalition, is getting it done right. They see health not just as a meal, but a comprehensive lifestyle, and this ethos is coming to life in so many ways. 
the healthier habits are translating into the homes and the kids are reporting that they are feeling healthier. As far as increased performance, well, you're going to have to listen into the podcast and find out how the kids are doing in that department. But what I can say is that PS244 is the envy of many schools and parents. Amy fields calls all the time from other schools interested in creating healthier options for their students. There's just so much to say about Amy and what she has created, not only in PS244 and also Manhattan's Peck Slip School, the second school to go all veggie, but also in the resources available to all schools across the country, which we talk about extensively on today's show. There's even a hotline for everyone Parents, teachers, principals, students, anybody who's interested in finding out how to make their school lunch program healthier. The coalition's mission is to change how schools feed kids by introducing plant-based foods and nutrition education in schools to educate the whole school community. When I look at obesity statistics, the thought of our generation living out younger generations, childhood diabetes, and the fact that heart disease signs and symptoms are being seen in the womb, I am disheartened. But only for a minute, because then I look at an amazing organization like the Coalition for Healthy School Food, and I look at the unbreakable will of a woman like Amy, and my hope is renewed. And it becomes stronger than ever because I see so much power behind the mission. Entire families are in transformation because of the trickle effect that one meal a day is having on entire communities. We are so excited to bring to you today, Amy Hamlin. She is a nutritional powerhouse and steadfast ambassador for animals. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, so let's dive right in. You are the executive director of the Coalition for Healthy School Foods, correct? Yes, I am. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and not only that, but you are a wonderful point of connection for us. You've really brought a lot into our awareness, which has been wonderful. And we had experienced a veganic farming workshop at your soon-to-be home, which why don't we just why don't we just dive into that? Tell us about what's happening down the street. Okay, great. Well, thank you. I have had a lifelong dream of building my own home and growing fruit. And finally, after many, many years, it's coming true. So the farm will be veganic. That stands for vegetable organic. It means there are no animal inputs, no manure, bone meal, blood, fish meal, all things that are slaughterhouse byproducts. Well, not the manure, but animal byproducts, many of which are slaughterhouse byproducts. And it is true that those provide nutrients for growing plants. It's also true that they're not necessary. Everything that ends up in those items comes from the animals eating green food. And so you can produce your own fertility through compost, through green cover crops, through using cut grass and shredded leaves, things that are already on the property. And I think a lot of people don't understand how much, and I learned this yesterday, how much actually there is of animal products in fertilizer and things like that, that you're, so let's say somebody's got an organic garden at home and they're thinking that they're eating a vegan or plant-based diet, whatever terminology you want to use, but actually this 
stuff is what's feeding the plants and what's feeding the plants becomes the plants. It's true. <laughs> and it's hard to find these items without animal products. I did I did recently locate a bag of potting soil for my house plants in my home without any animal products. And so I was glad to find it. But I still do recommend that vegans eat organic food, even if animal inputs are put into it, because otherwise our choices are to eat chemical-laden food, which is damaging the environment, also hurts and kills animals, and is tested on animals. And so it's not really an option either, I don't think. So, I mean, the other option is that we starve. So we have to eat, and eating organic food is the better choice. But if we can start transitioning to veganic, that's even better. And is the veganic farming moving movement something that it's new, isn't it? Like, is it, is it new, or is it's just kind of coming up more popular? I mean, in, in this area where we are in Ithaca, there is, we were just talking, there is a, a strong vegan community here. So maybe it's more prevalent here, but I've certainly never heard of it until I came here. So that might just be lack of knowledge or from where I lived. It started in England, I'm not sure what year, and it was originally called stock-free agriculture. It was not founded as an ethical idea. It was founded for farms that did not have access to manure and other animal byproducts. And they showed that it is possible to grow veganically and have the food be very healthy. There are a number of veganic farms around the country, not a huge number, but there are, including some very successful ones like Huguenot Street Farm in New Paltz, New York, which is a very large CSA farm, and the food is great. So it can be done. And essentially, these animals that... The, the byproducts, right, that are, are being put into the materials that are coming from the animals, the animals are just eating plants. So we always say, like, just cut the middleman out. So use your grass clippings, right? Use your food. And one thing that, and this is such a simple thing, but with composting, I think a lot of people want to compost, but they don't know what to do with it. And one thing that the farmers were saying yesterday, you know, like, cut it up, chop it up. And you, was it you that said, put it in your blender with some water? Yes, though I recommend a separate blender container for that yeah and now it's like it's almost like a liquid and you can just feed the plants with it pour it on yeah feeding the plants with plants so how large is the garden over there i think it's close to half an acre we talk a lot about living your purpose here and and how do you follow your dream and this is a vision that you had for a long time and i'm sure there were times where and i know just in the short time that i've known you and being at your house there's moments where it's overwhelming so how do you keep the dream alive? Like what, how, what is it that you do to now be at a point where you have the structure of your house? We've seen the garden layout. You know, we can picture it. You're trying to get a fence up. If anybody wants to come and help Amy put her Please. fence up, she could really <laughs> use some help. How did you keep the dream alive for so many years? I'm just a very persistent person and I, I don't really have the idea in my head that I can't do things. And so I just try and try and try. And I have a website called greendreamhome.org. 
And on that website, I have the backstory, which talks about the challenges that I encountered along the way. And I'm pretty sure that many people would have given up, but I just, I don't give up. That's just part of who I am. And I can't, I can't make my dream come true if I'm not willing to work really hard. And that's just true for anyone. If you give up, then what you want is not going to happen. It is persistence to keep it alive, to stay strong and be brave and under, and know that you've got the power to do it. But if you quit, it just all drops away so quick. And it's, I'm just thinking about like as athletes, you know, when we're running a marathon, you're in so much pain and you can just stop and it will all go away, right? Or you can just take one step at a time and get to that finish line. That's a great analogy. So speaking of not giving up, Tell us about the Coalition of for Healthy School Food, because being on that website, you guys are doing so much. You've created so much. So when did this come into fruition? Did you start it? Sort of. I was partly responsible for starting it. My friend Jennifer Green from Long Island, from Vegan Long Island, and I were at a workshop at Vegetarian Summerfest, and it was on healthy school food, getting vegan food in schools. We were the only two who showed up for the workshop, and the workshop was presented. Jennifer and I had formed a committee on the local PTA. This is when I lived on Long Island, and we were successful in getting vegan food on the menu in an elementary school that her son attended five days a week. So that was a huge success. And Jennifer invited me to join the PTA, and that together we would be the nutrition committee. They let us do it. We worked with the food service provider and we got the food on the menu. So we then attended this this workshop at Vegetarian Summerfest. And six months later, I got a call from the presenter of the workshop asking if I would like to be a volunteer to help get a resolution passed in the New York State Legislature, which is not a law, but it's a recommendation, and they vote on it as if it's a law. So I said, no, um, I, I can't volunteer. I'm too busy. I have a toddler. I have these multiple part-time jobs, but if you can hire me, I'd be happy to give up one of the other part-time jobs. And so it happened. I was hired. I worked a lot more hours than I was paid for, to get it written based on California's resolution. And then I added a whole bunch more things to it, which strategically was very good because we had to compromise on a number of issues. But the issues we compromised on were really non-vegan issues. They're important issues, but they're non-vegan issues. And the legislators told me, if you don't take those out, this is not gonna pass. But had we not had those in there, Maybe they would have had us take out other things that were related to the vegan issue. So I think it went well. So it actually passed after just a few months. It passed unanimously. So again, it's not a law. It's a recommendation. And then one of the funders and I spoke about it, and we thought that now that this resolution exists, there needs to be a nonprofit organization in order to implement the recommendations of the resolution. And he gave us the first year and a half of funding, which was amazing. He's our angel because we couldn't have done it without him. And we raised other money that year too, but 
it was really because of him that we were able to do that. And so we have grown ever since. We originally started out as an organization for all of New York State, but we really, our, our programs and our recipes have now been used nationwide. Our recipes have been distributed to 25,000 schools nationwide. We partner with the largest school food service operation in the country, which is New York City. So we have a formal partnership with them. And we've been successful in helping two schools to adopt fully vegetarian menus. And one of those which people may know because it hit big media was the PS244 in Queens. That's right. And so that was big in the news. And do you know how they're doing with it? They're doing great with it. We continue to partner with them. We put on family dinner nights there every year. We do after-school cooking classes there. The program is very successful. And although it's vegetarian and not vegan, all schools in the National School Meal Program must offer milk. And in addition, if not enough kids are eating the vegan entree, they're going to continue offering cheese-based entrees. But our goal is to get more and more vegan entrees on the menu. So that's what we're interested in. Why do they need to have the, the milk or the dairy required? Is that, is that higher up? Is it Oh, yes. Just- that's, well, that's the, the power of the dairy industry, which is a really interesting topic. And I'm always a little afraid to say this because they're so powerful they hear things and then they can give you a hard time in a number of different ways i could give you an example about that later but they're very powerful i mean they have their own food category in what used to be the pyramid and is now the my plate guide and yet there's so much research about the problems with dairy and I think the reason it really originally was one of the food groups was for strong bones, but the research now shows dairy does not build strong bones. Additionally, the research shows that 100% of chronic childhood constipation and anal fissures can be reversed with a dairy-free diet. That's very powerful because I know I go to speak to young children. I speak to kids of all ages in schools, but the young children are not too embarrassed to talk about the the concept of constipation and admit (laughs) if they have it. So in kindergarten through second grade classes, when I ask the children, do they know what the word means? And then once we talk about what the word means, how many people does that happen to? They all raise their hands. And then I ask them, how many people does it happen to a lot? Most of them raise their hands. So this is really a serious problem because anybody who's been constipated knows it makes you very uncomfortable. It's hard to focus. It's hard to feel good and enjoy yourself. So how can kids really focus on learning when a huge percentage of them are chronically constipated? And so dairy is very involved with that. It's also very involved with Parkinson's disease And it's a probable carcinogen for prostate cancer and a possible carcinogen for ovarian cancer. And it is also mildly associated with teen acne. There's many other problems with dairy, but those are some of the most significant problems. But the industry is really powerful. And that is a problem that our government does not work in such a way that it takes into consideration people first before corporations. I mean, a huge percentage of the population is lactose intolerant. 
which is sort of described as a condition, but in fact, lactose intolerance is actually normal. Mammals are supposed to be lactose intolerant after they're weaned. What is really the condition is something called lactase persistence, which exists in about 80% of Caucasians. So about 20% of Caucasians can't digest lactose, and the vast majority of people of color cannot digest lactose, and that is really the norm. So no other mammal continues drinking milk after they're weaned, certainly no other mammal except for maybe pet cats drink the milk of another species, but that's only because humans give it to them. So there are a lot of problems with dairy, and there's so many incredible dairy replacements that there's just no, there's absolutely no need for it, and but it's just a very powerful industry. So in these schools where you're working actively with the lunch program, are you seeing any kind of introduction of nut-based milks, or is that just not? Not affordable, number one. Number two, allergy concerns. However, the law does provide, the federal program does provide for the possibility of soy milk. However, two things. One is you have to have a note either from a doctor or from your parent saying you want soy milk. And two, the school then may, but is not obligated to provide it because it costs more and the federal government is not going to pay to make up the difference in cost. That said, I know that the American Soy Foods Association is working to make it the same cost as cow's milk so that it could be offered. So I'm, I'm glad that that effort is being made. So the dairy essentially is affordable because of the farm subsidies. Is that correct? I mean, the, the government subsidizes these farms so that they're able to push out a lower priced yes. product. Pretty much most animal products are subsidized with our taxpayer dollars, which is also a really interesting conundrum because these are the foods we know contribute to diet-related diseases. And our taxpayer dollars are, first of all, subsidizing these foods and beverages. And then our taxpayer dollars are also paying for research about how to cure these diseases. And, and taxpayer dollars like that are coming out of my pocket and your pocket, we don't necessarily want it going to this. So for people who don't understand farm subsidies, can you explain that a little bit? You know, I'm not an expert on that topic. It's just that when you look at the foods that are subsidized, they're pretty much the opposite of the foods we're told to eat more of and in line with the foods that research says we should eat less of. But what it does in the end, as far as like the impact on your wallet, is that they come out less expensive. And so a lot of what we hear some is that it's too expensive to eat healthy, it's too expensive to eat organic. But the thing is, is that people, they're not seeing how much food should actually cost. Right. That people are not paying the true cost for animal products. And that's because of subsidies, certainly. I've also heard fruit and vegetable farmers saying they don't want subsidies, but that's just technical language. There's other kinds of price supporting programs that could benefit them other than the subsidies. Obviously, healthy food should be the cheap and easy. And that's why you're growing so much Option. fruit, because you said that there's <laughs> there's a lack of, of fruit farms. There's not enough, I think, there's not enough fruit being grown locally. Certainly not. 
And the thing is, is that you get this huge farm and it's you and your daughter. But what you said you were going to do is start a CSA, maybe a pick your own CSA. And now what you're doing is you're growing food locally. You're going to be growing it veganic. Um, now families are coming in. Kids are getting up close and per- personal with you know, the the plant life and how it provides the food. Mm-hmm. And this is something we would never see on a factory farm. Well, that's true. So when I have my plants in the ground and when I have the farm actually started, which I can start after the fence is finished, um, yes, the farm will serve as a veganic demonstration project designed to educate the public about what it means. So I want to put a big plaque on the fence that explains it so any visitor will be exposed to that information automatically. Then I want to hold workshops like the one that we just held for the public to come and learn. So getting back to the school lunches, the dairy industry that, you know, there's it, it's required that there's milk there. Do you see the same thing from the um, from the meat industry? There's no actual requirement to serve meat. Um, for example, the schools that are vegetarian in New York City do not serve meat. So there's no requirement to serve it. But in terms of what the food service directors are going to be willing to serve, their main goal is to get the kids to eat. And many of the kids who are participating in the school meal programs are um, from very low-income families. And on the days that they attend school, really depend on that food as their source of nourishment. And the school meal programs have made a lot of progress. They really have. They offer many more fruits and vegetables. Many schools try to get local food. They have more whole grains. But I see the categories that need the most help are the protein category and the dairy category. I think water is the beverage of choice. It is required in schools participating in the school meal program that free water be available, not bottled water, but free water be available. That can be in a water dispenser. It can be in a pitcher that's placed on the table with cups. If there is a water fountain in the cafeteria, you can put cups next to that and the students can get that. The trick is with a water fountain, students need to be allowed to get up and go get it, which oftentimes the elementary kids aren't allowed to get up from their seats during lunch. And even though it's now a federal requirement that schools offer water for students to drink, there's still many schools that aren't doing that. And it's important because sometimes the children are drinking milk just to wash down their food. So if the water was available, that would definitely be a good thing. And if our listeners want to get involved in some way in making their local schools better, they should check into whether or not water is being served as it should be in the cafeteria. Is it enforced at all? So there's that law. And it sounds like it's not because there are some schools that don't have water. Inspectors go around and look to make sure that the requirements are being met. But I'm really not sure. I mean, first of all, they don't go very often. I think because of the number of inspectors, also paid by our tax dollars who work for the state. So it's a federal meal program as administered through the states. And so then the state education department has employees who are inspectors and they go around and they make sure the right the food is meets the calorie requirements, the fat, the sodium, all these other requirements. And so they should be looking for things like that. 
this was implemented in 2012, I think. I mean, it was the law passed in 2010. I'm not exactly sure when they had to start it. But um, it seems like it took them a really long time to clarify all the rules. And it seems like just recently they've been really trying to make very clear all the rules. And so I'm not sure how carefully they're looking. I'm not sure how much they might turn a blind eye. I, I don't really know. And this is across all schools throughout the United this States. This is all schools. That's right. This is a federal, the federal okay. school meal program is a federal program administered by the states, but it's the federal regulations and rules. And so essentially the reason why PS244 couldn't be completely vegan is because of they're required to have the, the milk. That's right. Like it's, it's a law. That's right. It would take an act of Congress to change that. But with the dairy industry as powerful as it is, that's not something my organization can take on. We're a very small nonprofit. Well, in the, the USDA, which provides our dietary guidelines, they I think what a lot of people don't know is that they have dual roles, right? Yes. That, that they are providing the dietary guidelines, which includes what's happening with the school lunch program. And then can you share what they what they also do? Well, they also promote agricultural products. It's the meat and dairy industry essentially are their clients. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my understanding. And U.S. citizens who they're supposed to yeah, help it's, be healthy. It's really shocking to find out stuff like that. And I, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. I just, we want to get the information out so people understand that because it's not, as, as Dr. Melinda Joy, is that her name, Melinda Joy? Melanie Joy. Melanie Joy, yeah. She um, she talks about the carnism, that we are a carnistic society. Uh, so that, because what happens is that we live in the society that is conditioned and believes and acts that it's, that it's normal, necessary, natural to eat meat and to drink the, the milk of a cow. And I think originally that was really believed, you know, and we found out over time that meat isn't necessary and it's not healthy. The same with dairy, the same with eggs. So I think originally when it was the USDA's role to do both, I think they fully believed. So I don't think it is a conspiracy. I think they fully believed they were doing the right thing and that these two things together were consistent. But over time, we now know they're not. But of course, we know the power of corporations, the power of the animal agriculture industry, and um, that's politics. That's politics. Unfortunately, it's usually not people who come out ahead, and we already have the answer to probably 70 to 80 percent of the health problems in this country. You know, we say there's a health care crisis. Insurance is so expensive. Insurance is so expensive because seven out of 10 adults are overweight or obese, and 30% of children are overweight or obese. That's why we have a healthcare crisis. And yet there's been research that shows that a low-fat, whole foods, plant-based diet reverses heart disease without drugs or surgery, can reverse type 2 diabetes, can prevent cancer and extend cancer survival time, and can reduce or reverse or at least make better a number of autoimmune diseases. Certainly people who follow whole foods, plant-based diets have less overweight and obesity. Research is very clear about a whole foods, plant-based diet. 
And yet the public relations industry for these businesses is so effective in fooling people and giving them the wrong information in protecting the businesses that hire them to protect them. And there's a really fantastic book that I just highly recommend everyone read called Toxic Sludge is Good for You, Lies, Damn Lies, and the Public Relations Industry. And it's 15 or 20 years old at this point, but still fully relevant, very eye-opening about how public relations, the public relations industry works. And if I could give you an example, I used to work in tobacco control. I worked to try to get a ban on smoking in public places before we had that statewide in New York State. There's still states that don't ban it in public places, amazingly. But the tobacco industry has tobacco gear. So when you send in the little certificates from cigarette packages and you send in a certain number, you can get duffel bags, jackets, hats, t-shirts, and all kinds of tobacco gear and serve as a free advertising sorry, free advertising agent for the tobacco industry. But that's not all. It's not just free advertising that they want. It's all part of a plan to not just get you advertising for them for free, but also to get your information, to get your name and address. And so then what would happen is anytime these laws would be presented to ban smoking in public places, to put cigarettes behind the counter, which they are now, they would they would contact all these people whose contact information they had, give them all these talking points, tell them to attend the hearings, tell them to write letters and say they don't want this law to happen. So there was a park that they wanted to get a law to ban smoking just on the bleachers where people sat with their kids outdoors watching sports teams play and people didn't like other people smoking next to them and their kids and i went to the public hearing to speak in favor of the ban there must and this is a tiny tiny town there must have been 20 people showing up in their tobacco gear speaking against it all saying the same things the talking points that were provided to them and this is how big industries work They do these things, this is public relations work that makes it look like some sort of grassroots effort when in fact it's really paid for, it's a concerted campaign paid for by these industries that makes these things happen. That's public relations. And I think that the dairy industry is, I mean, they're launching a whole new campaign to to replace their Got Milk campaign because milk sales are going down, way down. Almond milk's through the roof, you know, nut allergies or not, it's through the roof right now. And do you think like things like that are still going on? Like as far as getting people to, you know, support them in the way that the tobacco industry did? Well, they're always, I mean, I think we can all understand if your business is threatened, you panic and you try to pull out all the stops to do something about it. So from their point of view, I get it. I get it. But there's other options. But those options aren't always easy. For example, if our government really recognized and acknowledged all the problems that research shows that there are with milk, they would say it should be banned. But 
then you would have all these people who would who would lose their 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 income, their source of living. And so they should be helped. They should be helped with special programs to help them transition. It's not probably very easy for a dairy farmer to just say, oh, I, I think I'll do something else instead. But it would be great if they did. I know somewhere in Europe there was a program called Dairies to Berries, which was a very successful program. I don't really know much about it, but... I think if you look up dairies to berries, you could find out something about Yeah, we'll it. look that up and put it in the show notes. You know, you keep hearing these beautiful stories about farmers who are, you know, n- you know, pig farmers and things like that who are now going vegan and but there's no support for these guys federally. I mean, they are they are basically doing this all on their own. Right? Like they, there's not really a supportive environment and I love your idea of helping them. Would you say that the you know, the government's not recognizing the the correlation. And I know, you know, for if we just shift it real quick to like the GMOs, like they're kind of like a don't, don't, if we don't look at it, then we don't have to be involved in it kind of thing. You know, there's a lot of controversy about the GMOs. You know, we don't have a lot of research because they're fairly new. But my understanding is that big companies like Monsanto, they won't even address it because once they start addressing it, now they're going to have to defend it or become involved in it. Well, I just heard somewhere that there's a law or a proposed law where they are not going to label GMO products mm-hmm. with words, but with a product number. And so if you understand the product code, like I know with fruits and vegetables, if it's three or four, it's it's grown with pesticides. But if the number starts with a nine, it's organic. So even if it didn't say organic, but you saw that that product number, then you would know. So I guess somehow there's going to be some sort of a code which yeah, within the next two years, they need to label it. They don't have to label it, but they can use a QR code. So they don't have to say non-GMO. They can just put a QR code, which would force the consumer to use their phone to scan it and then look up the product. So, and it's not going to be enforced. You know, I think though that um, almost everything is a compromise. I don't want to compromise my values Certainly, but I think when you're talking about laws and things like that, everything, if it passes, ends up being a compromise, everything. And so I think it does lay some groundwork and it's a step. So for people who really do want to know, it's a step and they'll be able to look at it and find out. Obviously, I'd much rather have words, but I do feel like at least it's a step rather than nothing. And I, and I think it was a compromise because the he, the top people who deal with the organics were were in originally against it, but had turned for it. Um, and there must have been a reason why. And it may be just that that it's a step forward. It's it's a step in the right direction to getting this labeled on on um, on products. But again, they the other argument was you know the 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 people that don't have a smartphone or the people that don't have access to the yeah. internet, which is, you know, there's still some out there that won't be able to determine right. what what that product is. But right. um, yeah, well, guess we'll see what happens. It's it's two years, two, two years they have, you have to do that. So let's, let's take it back. I want to take it back to PS244 and we had um, talked about how they were doing. You said they were doing great. Are they seeing any differences in test scores or the way the kids are feeling, their health, BMI, anything like that? 
Well, I don't know if this is statistically significant or if you can prove cause, but the principle does say attendance is up, test scores are better, and that sort of thing. Um, you, re you really can't prove it because, first of all, they changed the way they run the tests, so you can't compare that right around that same time, the state testing, so you can't compare the test scores directly, and attendance can can variations can be caused by a lot of different factors. But the fact is that that school has a huge culture of wellness. That is their purpose. The school was started to not only promote academic excellence, but wellness. That's its mission. And the administration and the teachers and the parents, everybody's on board. So all of the adults that the children are interacting with are very supportive of this um of this atmosphere of wellness and and i think that is very important because if the children are surrounded by that message and the school's programs and education are about that and supportive of that it makes a huge difference what has been the reception from the parents very supportive good yeah very supportive and are there any other schools in the state of New York that have switched to this? Yes, we worked with another school that's in Manhattan, and they also adopted a vegetarian menu, and we assisted them in doing that. They did it because they heard about PS244, and they wanted to do it too, so they did. And it's been very successful there as well. Not only do you, I mean, you educate, but you have so many different resources, not just for the schools in New York, but schools throughout the entire nation you've got um a hotline mm -hmm. is that for is that nationwide that anyone oh sure anybody can call yeah so tell us about tell about the research i mean you've got posters like i think sometimes we overthink things like they have to be you know big and complicated and all of that to to support change or or health and wellness but they're very very simple messages because really living well is a very basic simple thing you just eat the basic, vibrant, beautiful foods that Mother Nature provides, right? Eat the spectrum, you're gonna get what you need. It's not overcomplicated. So can you talk about some of the resources that you have available for schools in and out of the state? Sure, and I think it's a great time for me to do a little fundraising plug too. Oh yeah, yeah, for for sure. <laughs> we are a relatively small organization and yet we have accomplished a great deal. Our funders are so impressed by how much we've accomplished with a small budget. And that's really great. One of the reasons we can do that is because we don't spend money and time on doing needs assessments and studies of the problem. We feel it's very clear what the problems are and the solutions are also very clear. So, in, so some people get grants just to figure out what the problem is. And we think we know what the problem is and we know what we have to do and so we just do it. And we've been very, very successful that way. So when a person donates to us or a company donates to us, they can be sure that their money is really accomplishing a lot more than when they donate to some much bigger organization. What is also good to know is that with us, all the pieces are in place for change. The only thing that prevents us from having a bigger impact is not having enough funding 
to get more feet on the ground. You know, if we had a policy person who could work on policy issues, who could be working with the USDA or educating lawmakers, we could make a lot more change if we had that person. If we had a chef, we could have the chef regularly going around to the schools, making sure the schools are doing the absolute best job that they could be doing with the food that they're serving and making sure that the vegan food is very appealing, cooked right, presented in a nice way. That would be helpful. If we had more teachers, we could be providing our curriculum in more schools. And if we had more administrator type people, we could make sure that more schools around the country are aware of the educational resources that we offer and the recipes that we offer. And so all these pieces are in place. We'd love to get more feet on the ground. And so um, I think sometimes some of our challenges with fundraising are because we do have a mission to only promote plant-based foods. That is our mission. And it's for multiple reasons. It's, it's for the kids. It's for the environment. You know, I'm sure you've done other podcasts, but for anyone who doesn't already know. Oh, please dive <laughs> in because I think that that is a big blind spot for so many people. Animal agriculture is probably the biggest cause of global warming that an individual can directly impact every day, every time they eat. I was so frustrated when I woke up this morning, I was listening to a story on public radio. It was a long story all about global warming. So it wasn't like the time was limited. It was a very long story. And they were talking about turning off lights and things like that. They didn't mention animal agriculture at all. And yet we know from few few different studies, Livestock's Long Shadow from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization that animal agriculture, and it's not just cows, it's all animals, though cows are particularly big contributors. Animal agriculture is responsible, according to that study, for 18% of greenhouse gases. That's more than all transportation combined, which is 14%. But then another study came out from the lead environmental researchers from the World Bank, and it was published in World Watch Institute. And it said that they believed all the previous research really underestimated the numbers and that their numbers were 51% of all global warming was caused by animal agriculture. Now, I don't think we should argue over numbers. And maybe it's not 51%, maybe it's 30%, or maybe it's only 18%. But even if it's 18%, that's almost one-fifth. And it might not be so easy for someone to just walk instead of drive or ride a bike instead of drive, although those are really wonderful, great options. Most people who have cars can't just go out and get a Prius or some other hybrid car. Most people can't just move to a smaller house or just go buy a new appliance, you know, because most people don't have the income for that. And yet every time we eat, we can make a choice. And even choosing not to eat one hamburger, we can save the amount of water, for example, that we might use in showering for two or three months just from one So somebody hamburger. who wants to save, save showers to save the environment, they'd be better off. Take eating. your showers <laughs> exactly, and don't clean. eat a few hamburgers. <laughs> and so, you know, and you can reduce your water too. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but the way you reduce the most water 
is by cutting back or ideally eliminating animal products in your diet. That is really the biggest action and it's an easy way. And especially now, it's so easy to be vegan. There's so many non-dairy milks. There's so many, you know, like meat replacers. I don't really like meat replacers. I just want to eat beans and lentils and split peas. But I think meat replacers are a great option for people. And there's a lot of veggie burgers that don't try to be like meat, like the uh, happy burgers that I love to make, which are black beans, sweet potatoes, and oats, and really delicious. They don't try to be like meat. But... um, So, but the meat replacers are great for helping people transition. Or if you have those childhood favorites like beef stroganoff, well, you can make tempeh stroganoff or seitan stroganoff. You could have those flavors without the meat. And so it's really easy now because of all the products out there, all the recipes, all the websites and blogs. So it's just very easy to eat a plant-based diet now. It's so easy. And I'm like you, I have no desire to bite into anything that simulates flesh ever again. Or to even call it that. Yeah. Either. But, you know, for some people, that's great. It's an, uh, and it's, it's a, what they need. Yeah. And it's an entry point. So there is definitely a place for it. Absolutely. There's a huge market. And I commend these companies who are not only doing it, they are doing it well. Beyond Meat blows me away. They're doing a fabulous job of it. Yes, and so it's 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 almost like there's no excuse, you know. That's like, right. There's no excuse except there is one excuse that people use, and I want to address that because it's a really important point. Okay, go. And that is people say it's more expensive to eat this way. And really, it's not. And here's why. Everybody, whether they're an omnivore or a vegan, is supposed to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And so what's different is the protein component and the dairy component. So the glass of milk should be replaced by water and then you don't have to pay for milk and you save the money on the milk. And then the protein component, the meat, the eggs, the cheese, is replaced by beans, lentils, split peas, and if you like tofu, then tofu or tempeh. And tofu and tempeh and certainly all the legumes are definitely cheaper than meat and cheese. So what gets expensive, more expensive, is when you're buying prepared processed items like frozen meals or when you're getting organic. And here's another thing about about that, the whole cost thing. Eating organic is really, it's important. It's a good thing to do. But something like 95% of all the pesticides that enter our bodies come in through eating animal products. The total amount that we get from eating plant foods is really minimal because it's just what's on the plant. It's not like what's in the animal products where the the pesticides and herbicides bioaccumulate in the fat cells over that animal's life. And even though those animals have short lives, it's still bioaccumulated in their fat. And so 95, something like 95% around there somewhere of all the pesticide residues in our bodies come from eating animal products. So a lot of people worry about what's called the dirty dozen list, which is the fruits and vegetables that have the greatest pesticide residues. But even if you ate those foods, non-organic, but gave up all animal products, you'd be dramatically reducing the pesticide load in your body. That is, I think that nullifies that excuse right there. I mean, it's, if you can't afford, 
afford the organic or you can't always get it right let's let's sometimes you can't always get it some people there are some food deserts things like that get what you can get what you can and it's you know it's progress not perfection that's right i would say we say that almost every podcast (laughs) it's progress not perfection and it's every time you pick up that fork right are you are i mean honestly every time you pick up that fork like you could be harming yourself harming the animals harming the planet harming the future or you could be bringing more health to your body more health to the planet and 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 more health to to this industry of veganic farming and organic farmers and bringing more health to their businesses so that we start to tip the scales a little bit but you know um as a beginning farmer I would encourage everyone to grow however many plants they can. People who live in the city maybe can't do that. Um, At the very least, they could grow sprouts in their windowsills. But a lot of um, people who are lower income in big cities do have a few options which are really great. For example, they can use their SNAP benefits at the farmer's market, for one thing. And another thing is there are many subsidized community-supported agriculture programs in the cities. So that if a person is low income and they do some research, they can oftentimes find a way to get healthy local organic produce. There is always a way. And it's it's what's your motivation, right? There's There's always a way. So speaking of motivation and keeping these schools motivated and keeping them educated, talk about some of the other things that you have, like explain that hotline. And also the, um, I loved this, was the morning announcements. Okay. So the hotline (laughs) is really just my phone number. (laughs) Call if you need advice. We are happy to help anyone, any school, anywhere. We've spoken to schools in other countries as well. So um, just call. The phone number is on our website, which is healthyschoolfood.org. Again, that's healthyschoolfood.org. And we have something called Wellness Wake Up Call. These are nutrition education messages. They are written by registered dietitians. And they are in the form of easy to digest sound bites. Or nutrition education, one sound bite at a time. And they are read over the morning announcements in schools. Most schools have morning announcements, not all do. But for schools that have morning announcements, they are not more than 30 seconds and often more like 10 seconds of nutrition education a day. And schools are required by law to have wellness policies. This is nationwide. Schools must have wellness policies. Those wellness policies must have nutrition education goals. Each school district gets to make up their own wellness policy, but they almost have nutrition education goals. And teachers are on overload. Teachers have so many requirements and it's really hard to ask teachers to do more. You know, they go home and they work all evening and they just, they work so hard. And so this is a way to meet a nutrition education goal that doesn't put any added burden on the teacher. It's just over the loudspeaker. Now, if there's not a loudspeaker in the school, it is true that a teacher could at their morning circle read that but it's very easy to do and then for the elementary school children we encourage the school to make copies and send home the copies of these messages once per month which come with a healthy plant-based recipe 
we encourage the parents or caregivers to review the messages with their children and to make the recipe together because it's a really great way to spend quality time with your child. And the hope is then the parents will learn this information too because there's a lot of people, even the most educated people who know nothing about nutrition. So this is a great way to learn about nutrition and to get a number of new recipes. And then you have these simple little posters. We have some posters, which you can see in the store section of our website. And those were printed for us and um, that that printing was donated. And so it was really wonderful. We had a graphic designer volunteer create those for us. And I think they're really powerful messages. And And so those are, we, the posters are free, but we do ask for shipping and handling that covers the cost of the tube and the postage in the little bit of time we put into packing them up and getting them to the post office. But it's a good deal. And they're great to have hanging in your school cafeteria or your school front entryway for all to see. And most of this stuff, like I saw that, you know, for New York schools, it's free. And then out of state, it's like $10. I mean, it's, you're not asking for a lot of money to make big change. And those morning announcements for these kids to hear something every single day, this is such a simple thing. And it's getting, it's getting into their awareness. You know, some of them are actually listening. Some are maybe you know, distracted doing something else, but it's getting, it's in their awareness. We've heard that schools that are using it, that it really stimulates discussion among the kids. So that's great. That's awesome. We also um, have another resource called Feel Good Food Cards. And Feel Good Food Cards, well, it's a file and schools can print them themselves, but we would send the file. There's a small charge for it. But it's a set of cards. I think we have 150 some cards. They're color, they're double sided. There's a picture, like a studio shot of a food on the front. And then on the back, five interesting facts about that food. And then two more pictures. One, what does it look like when it's growing? And then another picture, which might be a closer up picture or something that's artistic or abstract or a picture of a recipe that uses that food. So these can be used in so many ways. Cafeterias sometimes use them to show what foods they're serving that day. We have all the plant food categories, vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, and nuts and seeds. And in addition, we have category cards for each of those five categories that it talks about the food in that category more generically. So cafeterias can display the cards. Teachers in their classrooms can show the cards. They can show a two-page view on a whiteboard so it can be projected if they can't print it. Some school districts have printing services. These would be very expensive to print in color and laminate commercially, maybe more than $300. But we have the Board of Cooperative Educational Services in New York State, which service a few different school districts together. They usually have print shops and there we can get it printed for $25 a set. I was gonna say, so that's amazing. These are just such, Simple, simple ways to get exposure to these students, to these young young children about fruits and vegetables. I just don't see how it's just not automatically there. Like, it's great that you're here and you're providing this for, for the schools um, because I'm sure there's students and, and kids out there that just don't know what a grapefruit is or know what an avocado is. And 
And this is just the perfect entryway to do that. But it's it's sort of surprising to me that it's not, you know, mandatory in the schools. Like this should be there. Um, well, it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of different nutrition education resources out there. I think what distinguishes ours is that we really focus on the message of not just any individual food. Although in the case of our feel-good food cards or even our wellness wake-up call messages, sometimes we are focusing on individual foods. But the point of these programs overall is to really talk about the benefits of a plant-based diet or a more plant-based diet. And that is so important because most people just don't talk about it. And um, that's the message we want to get across. The more plant-based your diet, the better for all kinds of reasons. And it seems from looking at the website, everything's locked and loaded. It's ready to go. I mean, this program's ready to blow up. You just <laughs> need a little extra financial support, some more feet on the ground, right? Yes. You're ready to change the world. We are ready to change the world. <laughs> and the so, world of school food. <laughs> spe- speaking of, tell us, um, so anything else you want to talk about with the, the coalition? And we'll put, we're going to put in the show notes all these different links and even links within your site so people can get to the store and get to the wake up wellness messages and things like that. And the donation. I'm sure there's a donation link yes. on there. Oh, yes. There is a donation Great. link. Yeah. In your event, you have a big annual event every October. Yes. We have our big event, which is a vegan food tasting feast. And it is in New York City on the Upper West Side this year on Thursday, October 20th. And so if you go to the events page of our website, you can find out more about it there. But this is just amazing. All the food is donated. There's drinks. There's a silent auction, a raffle. It's a really fun event. And many prominent vegans have said it's the best vegan party in town. And so we get kind of a combination of people who really care about the issue of school food and vegans who just want a good party. Although... (laughs) If they're vegan, they do care about schools having healthier food anyway. Um, so we'll put all this stuff up in the show notes. But I've, I want to ask you about your... We were sharing yesterday about our plant-based stories. And I wanna, we want to hear yours. Oh, how I became vegan. Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is a it's, a... it's a tough story, really. Um, my mom used to be the executive director of the local SPCA where I grew up. And when she got that job... She inherited with it the way that the shelter had been killing the animals. Because back then, about 90% of the animals that went in never came out. They didn't have back then the kinds of marketing programs to adopt shelter animals and the kind of spay and neuter marketing programs that they have now. So many of the animals just never came out. And so obviously they had to have some way to kill them. And the way that my mother inherited was a decompression chamber. This is a machine that had a window on it. And I don't know what possessed me to watch, but when I was 19 years old, I watched through the window as, and and they would put as many animals in there as could fit at a time. I don't really remember how many animals were in there, but I have to say at least six, maybe 10 dogs And I watch them, it sucks the air out of their lungs. So the first they pass out, and then it continues until they die. I watched it happen. It was really awful. It was really a wake-up call because I, I somehow realized in that moment 
that this death, it was unnecessary. It was, it was death and it didn't have to happen if people had been responsible with dogs and by extension cats because that also happened to the cats there. And I suddenly realized that when I ate animals, I was causing their death. And so I had to become a vegetarian because, you know, I've heard it said that by Mylan Engel, a philosopher, that virtually everyone, unless we are sociopaths, already possesses the belief system that if we could cause less suffering, we would, we would choose to cause less suffering. And I think there's a huge wall, a lot of cognitive dissonance that prevents people from seeing the reality of what happens when animals are raised for food. It's, it's the suffering when they're raised, but even if they could be raised in the very nicest of ways, they're still slaughtered. And there can be no such thing as humane slaughter. That is just an oxymoron. And I just, I wanted no part of it. I wanted no part of that suffering and death that didn't need to happen. I mean, if you had to eat animals to survive, then we would be like, you know, if we were like carnivores and we had to have animals to survive, well, that would be different, but we don't have to. We really don't have to. And even though we might technically be omnivores, our digestive systems, our teeth, our nails, much more closely resemble herbivores than carnivores. And according to the research that Colin Campbell has done, that's in the China, in his book, The China Study, as soon as animal product consumption goes beyond one serving of animal products per week, we start to see an increase in all the diet-related diseases. So really, our physiology is designed for almost no animal products. And so if you're talking about one serving a week versus no servings a week, apparently the research does not see any difference there. But as soon as you go to more than one serving a week, you start to see the rates of these diseases going up. And so I think that it's just really important that we know that it's it's not good for our health. It's not good for the animals and it's not good for the environment. It yeah. would be different if we needed animal products in our diet, but we don't. And I again, I wanted no part of this suffering and death. So I stopped eating meat. However, it took me 10 years to find out what happens. Where does milk come from? Where do eggs come from? And how are those animals treated? And as a feminist, anybody who's a feminist, and feminists aren't just women, they're men too, right? Like you. And so... <laughs> oh my God, BJ's such a feminist. So like, really the point is, is that raising animals for food is really, truly a feminist issue. It's the female animals who are very exploited for the milk and for the eggs. The males actually are too, because none of these animals that are raised for food are breeding naturally. It's all artificial insemination. So how they get the sperm out of those animals is a very awful story. How they get the sperm into those animals is a really awful story. And so I read an article by Victoria Moran, one of my favorite people from Main Street Vegan. And um, it was in Vegetarian Times Magazine in 1988 or 1989. And it was called, What About Dairy and Eggs? So I read that article. And, it, and once I realized, 
what they did to the cows and what they did to the chickens. And the fact is those animals then die and become cheap meat after they're done using them for all those years for their reproductive capacities. So I had to then give up those products. There was just no choice. I had to. And I haven't missed them at all. A lot of people say, I could never give up cheese. I could give up milk, ice cream. I could never give up cheese. Well, there are so many fantastic cheeses now, and not just the more processed ones, but the aged nut cheeses made using traditional cheese-making techniques like Miyoko's, which is just amazing. There's, there's egg substitutes. There's just, there's just no need for those products anymore. You can make all of your favorite foods with vegan versions. And I agree. Um, I believe we are wired to be compassionate beings but we're born into a society that teaches us that it's normal necessary and natural to eat animals and there's a hardening that happens that it moves us away from our nature but like you you saw something very shocking and intense and um and then you learned about the dairy industry. Once you make the connection and you start to, like for me, it was like once I started to internalize the suffering, I never wanted to harm another animal ever again. And all children are that way naturally, you know. Yeah. If you look at the children's storybooks and you look at the ways that farms and the animals on farms are depicted, it is nothing like the reality. Although Ruby Roth makes great children's books. Oh, that I think I know her, yeah. Yeah, Vegan is Love, and yes. there's an alphabet book. These are great books, and they teach children the reality, but in a way that I think is very sensitive to the fact that yeah. they're children. But, but children naturally do not want to harm animals, and um, kids who are involved in some of these farm programs, you know, they, they have the animal, they raise the animal, they show the animal, the animal wins a prize, and then the animal goes off to slaughter. And over and over again, you hear the stories from the kids and how they cried and cried and cried because they made friends with that animal. Because they're, they're beings. That's they're beings right. just like you and me, and they're social, and they, and they don't want to die. They have families. They will <laughs> do anything to avoid death. And... Um, the interesting thing about this concept of carnism, which Melanie Joy developed, is that it's an invisible belief system that it's okay to eat certain animals. And that system varies by culture. So for example, some cultures eat dogs and feel that that's okay. In this country, we feel that eating dogs or horses is not okay. And yet we could take very similar animals like cows or pigs similarly intelligent similarly loving similarly with family groups that they love very sentient and we don't see the similarity and so when you say pe people become hardened they do but it's invisible they don't they don't they know don't, what's happening they don't realize it they mm. don't even know it until somehow the layers get peeled away. And some people, not even consciously, but unconsciously avoid that. They, they can't look at it. A lot of people they do did, that. They would have to change, but they're not even doing that purposely. That's unconscious too. Yeah. So, but I think um, 
with all of the talk show hosts and social media and the work of the animal activists and the vegan movement, I feel like it's becoming more widely recognized. Maybe not as much as some of us want to believe, but it is. I, I feel like people now will say, I mean, there's still a lot of people who don't know what vegan means, you know, out there in the general public. But a lot of people will now say, oh, yeah, I know that's really healthy. I, I know I should do that. I don't want to do it, but I know I should. You know, where where it used to be, people would say, that's crazy. That's extreme. Of course, those were also talking points of the animal industry, right? Um, but the meat industry used to talk about how eating vegan was like an unscientific idea. Well, they can't say that anymore, certainly, because it is very scientific that a plant-based diet is, is the healthiest diet. And I agree, it's it's growing, and, and you've probably seen a lot in the time that you've been vegan, and we've seen a lot in the short four years that we have been as well. So if you think about how much it's grown, I think it's just going to continue to accelerate. So I take that optimistic stand that, you know, the message is going to continue to get out there. And through mediums like this, you know, you're going to be reaching people who you don't know, who may not know of you. And now that message is going to go and it trickles. Now they'd maybe tell a friend or a family member. So somebody who's listening to this and maybe got their eyes opened a little bit, how would they, and I want to include the, you know, the family too, since we're really, we're talking about the schools and stuff. What's a step that they could make to start educating their family about the benefits of, you know, eating vegan, whether that's ethically or, or health-wise? What would you give them for advice or resource? Well, my very favorite resource is nutritionfacts.org. And yeah. Colin Campbell's The China Study and ForksOverKnives.com. Those are my favorite resources. Very, very powerful. On Fork, I'm sorry, on, um, for, well, on Forks Over Knives, you can get great whole foods, plant-based recipes. Everybody should read The China Study. On NutritionFacts.org, there's four one-hour videos that you can watch. But you can also sign up to receive a short three to five minute video every day. You can also just go on the website and look up any kind of disease, any kind of nutrition topic, and watch the short video. It's very, very powerful. And um, also, Dr. Michael Greger, whose website it is, has been giving a talk for his book, How Not to Die. And you can look that up and watch it on YouTube. If you look for the one that he gave in Ithaca, New York, at the Tompkins County Public Library, that's a great version but it's a powerful video and he is very funny so he can take these very serious topics and make them entertaining and funny and memorable and that's really important but the one other thing I want to say back to schools for a minute I became vegan because of the animals and I stay vegan because of the animals but I am also vegan because of health and because of the environment because of the people who work in the slaughterhouse industry. Um, it's a horrible job. There's huge amounts of danger in that job. It The people who do that job become very desensitized. There's a lot of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and domestic violence among people who work there. Um, I feel like it's uh, there's so many reasons to eat a plant-based diet. And specifically in relation to my job and what I do with the Coalition for Healthy School Food, 
I think about the kids and their families and I see so much suffering there and I want to see that stop. When I see a child whose father has diabetes and is in a wheelchair because their legs are amputated or because their parent because of type 2 diabetes is blind or has kidney disease and needs dialysis or somebody who loses their grandma at a very young age from heart disease or even their or even their parents i mean we have people dying now in their late 20s sometimes from heart disease and so i think about all the suffering that happens and we have children now even in elementary school getting what used to be called adult onset diabetes this is not just about the animals this is about people and it's about the suffering of people and our potential and how much more of our potential we can reach when we're feeling good and more healthy and we can think clearly. And so I think that is a really important thing to point out. I think that's very well said and the perfect place to end. So we are going to put all of this up in the show notes. I highly recommend you guys check out the resources that they've got. You know, if you're a parent, bring it to your school. I mean, these are cheap and effective ways to essentially change the future. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having us to both of your homes now. And don't forget to go to our website at healthyschoolfood.org. On the contact page, you can call me, you can email me. I'm happy to hear from you. I'm happy to help you change the food in your school. Especially if you come over and help her put her fence up. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much, Amy. All right, there you have it. Amy Hamlin, isn't she amazing? She's so knowledgeable about plant-based nutrition. She is so knowledgeable about living life as a vegan. She's dedicated her entire personal and professional life to this way of living, and it's so beautiful. And everything that she's doing for the younger generation to support others, to help them initiate change, you guys. But the thing that she's doing, which a lot of us make a mistake in, is that she's living the example and that's what we have to do. It's not about forcing agenda on other people. It's about living the change that we want to see in the world. It all starts with us. It all starts with what's on the end of our fork. It all starts when we go to the grocery store and we make those choices to buy processed, prepackaged, poisonous food or just go for the plants, go for the whole foods, go for what Mother Nature has provided and take advantage of Amy's hotline. She puts it out there. You guys check out the website. There's so much information on there. It's unbelievable. So we've got an extensive list in the show notes. Please check all of that out. And just for the record, I was in touch with Amy this week and she still needs help with her fence. If you're in the Ithaca area and you want to meet an amazing woman, or let's say you're going up to Farm Sanctuary where we did some volunteering when we were staying in New York and you want to do something amazing and help out an awesome woman, get in touch with Amy and help her out with her fence because she really needs some help and she is giving so much back. So it's time for her to receive. All right, you guys, that's it for this week. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for sending us your messages. Thank you for leaving reviews on iTunes. And please, if there's one thing that you can do, share the podcast, especially this one with all of your friends that have school-aged children. This could really start to fire up some sparks. And that's what we want to do. We want to help initiate change for those who are ready. So ride the high vibe. We'll catch up with you next week. 
I can't wait to bring you another show.